Running for Congress was never in the plan. It was never in the cards. It was never something that I thought I'd be able to do even. I think that as we look across the country, uh, women don't just want to talk about women's issues. We want to talk about everything that's important to our economy, to jobs, to our children's futures. And that's what we focused on in South Dakota discussions. My name is Deb Holland. I'm the Democratic nominee for New Mexico's first congressional district. If elected, if elected, I'll be the first Native American woman in Congress. Welcome to Omnia, the podcast on all things pen, arts, and sciences. In this episode, we explore a potential watershed moment in American politics, the unprecedented number of women running for office in 2018. So here's what we're seeing in the 2018 midterm elections. A lot of money is flowing into new types of candidates, and lots of women are throwing their hats in the ring. Along with the new trend towards campaign training programs. Many women have decided that they are going to run for office, and so we're seeing many more women who ran in primaries. Um, At the gubernatorial level, they didn't win, but at the um, state legislative level, as well as the congressional level, we're seeing women who are surviving the primaries. That's Don Teal, the Janice and Julian Bears Assistant Professor of Political Science. Teal researches women in politics, voting rights reform, and candidate recruitment. Right now, she's studying the largest Democratic campaign training program in the United States. It's called Emerge. Emerge recruits, trains, and connects Democratic women who want to run for office. The project that I'm working on is both trying to understand why it is that 50% of the women who take this training program don't run for office, but also think about some of the smaller interventions that might help launch women's candidacies. The interesting thing about campaign training, the reason why this matters intellectually as well as politically, is that there's been a narrative since the early 2000s that the problem with women's underrepresentation is basically a lack of political ambition. Many people think that it's psychological. It has to do with with that women's political ambition or lack thereof has to do with gendered processes of socialization where women are encouraged to have more communal goals uh, from a very young age, whereas men are allowed to have more individualistic goals. These are stereotypes, and I'm not convinced that they are true. These stereotypes, she says, don't take into consideration bigger issues. Teal calls them structural factors. They have nothing to do with a candidate's individual personality and everything to do with big systems. For example, in Europe, it's easier for women to hold political office because of the political system there. In the United States, we have an electoral system where the winner takes all. So the person who gets the most votes gets the office. It's a different system than many of the European countries that have proportional representation. In those systems, parties get allocated seats based on some rule um, that's linked to how many votes they get. And so many of the quotas, electoral quotas that have been adopted in other countries are in part saying 50% of your list has to be female or even more stringent and more effective for increasing women's representation that every other candidate on the list has to be a woman. 
So what does that have to do with political ambition? It means that in a European country, you can come up through a party system and get on the list after, you know, dedicated service um, within the party. You have to have political acumen for sure, but it's less individualized campaigning and it's more party-based campaigning. In the U.S., where it's more individualized campaigning, scholars of gender and politics have found that women tend to be uh, less interested in putting themselves into those sorts of electoral races. And then there's the question of money. Male candidates just tend to have more of it. Women and men's financial profiles as candidates look very different from one another. So men are much more likely to get donations from men and than they are from women. But the majority of donations to most female candidates is coming from women. But women give in smaller denominations than men. And so any given woman may be able to, at the national level at least, raise as much money as men do, but they're doing it in smaller denominations. And so that actually means they have to work harder for the same bottom line. Arlie Hochschild is a professor at Berkeley. She read a book called The Second Shift about how a lot of women work full-time jobs and then work another full day at home. Even if these women are married to self-proclaimed feminist men, in the final analysis, they're still doing much more household labor. Hochschild's explanations about women, labor, and power have fallen out of fashion, but Teal says they're still useful when it comes to understanding the barriers that have kept women out of politics. There are old arguments that say, look, when women work and contribute less to the household income and when they contribute more, they do more labor in the home. And the reason has to do with, you know, gendered socialization, masculinity and things like that. But the idea is even women who work full-time jobs who contribute 50% to the household income may be doing more labor in the home, which gives them less free time. I think that it's probably fair to say that women do 100 hours of labor a week. They tend to do uh, one and a half hours more labor in the home per day than men when they are married with children. If you have one and a half hours fewer per day, then that's one and a half hours fewer to do hobbies or politics. And these low-level political jobs are kind of like hobbies. 2018 is seeing a record number of women running for office, despite these obstacles. It's not the first time female political engagement has experienced a surge. When Teal looks at our political moment with the rise of nativism, populism, and anti-internationalism, she thinks of the early 20th century. That time period, too, saw a rise in female political action. And the early 20th century was a moment of very high mobilization of women in so many different domains. So, you know, the tenement movement, um, the sanitation movements, the, you know, educational movements for primary schools, for the public schools, and all of these things. And I think that what happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s, kind of coasting on um, a couple decades of economic growth and technological improvements, was that people got complacent. They thought that things were going to be okay no matter what. And so it seems that the kind of silver lining of this moment is everybody realizes, or many people realize, it's actually their responsibility. Like you can't just free ride on the political actions of others because things won't get done or they will be done poorly. And so now, you know, you have to step up. This has been a presentation of Penn Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to Don Teal from the Department of Political Science. 
To listen to previous episodes of the Omnia Podcast, visit our website or subscribe to the Omnia Podcast by Penn Arts and Sciences on iTunes.